The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. We are studying in the Epistle to the Romans and come today to the sixth chapter of Romans and the fourth verse. We are buried with him by baptism into his death. Now in the remaining part of the sixth chapter, we shall return again and again to the idea of our union with Christ in his death and our identification with him in that death. Following through the sequence that we have begun with the previous verse, however, we come to our identification with Christ in his burial, the next chronological event in his history, and our union with him in all that history. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled, In His Burial. Some people make arrangements with a cemetery to ensure they will be buried alongside their family members when they die. They feel it is important to be buried with their relatives, and yet they may not realize that it is infinitely more important to be buried with Christ in baptism. How are believers identified with Jesus Christ in His burial? And what significance does this have for our lives today? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, In His Burial. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for resurrection life in Christ. We praise thee that thou hast chosen us from the mass of corrupt humanity and hast by thy grace taken our sins through the atoning death of the Savior and given us life through his risen life. May each true believer in this hour be taught of the Spirit to appreciate his true position in Christ and to grow in the knowledge of the truth. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When we were placed in Christ, we were placed in his burial. The word that is used for burial in this instance is found only twice in the New Testament, here and in a parallel passage in Colossians. The preposition is included in the prefix of the verb. We are buried with. It has been best translated by Verkai in the Berkeley version, so we are jointly interred with Christ in death. Everything in the work of Christ has a special meaning and its own deep teaching. The men who developed the creed, known as the Apostles' Creed, were deeply conscious of the meaning of truth, and thus they incorporated the word buried in the creed. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. Every part of this is important. We sing a grand hymn of which the chorus runs, Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away. Now this truth, like every other truth in the New Testament, is beautifully illustrated in one of the Old Testament types. The very heart of the Old Testament revelation concerning God's dealing with the sins of men is to be found in the rites and ceremonies of the book of Leviticus. There is not an incident in the whole ritual that does not refer in some way to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most important of all the feasts in the order of the ceremonies were the Passover and the Day of Atonement. The Passover, of course, spoke of God's gracious dealing with his people in Egypt. A lamb was slain for each family, and the blood was placed on the doorposts of the house. The angel of death, which came to judge the Egyptians, passed over the houses where the blood had been applied. The sons of the houses where the blood was thus manifested were, were free from the death that struck all the eldest sons of Egypt. And thus God made the great difference manifest between those who were the children of the redemption and those who were the children of wrath. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was announced in the 16th of Leviticus. The Lord told Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons that a special ceremony was to be established so that Aaron would not die as his sons had died. Once a year, the high priest was to bring a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The sin offering was to be for himself. For the earthly priests were men, as are all other sons of Adam, and they too must have an atonement made for their sins. In the New Testament, in the epistle to the Hebrews, we're specifically told that this phase of the high priest's work did not refer to Christ. For in the New Testament, it says, Christ needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. And this is why we who teach the word of God are called pastors and ministers, but never call ourselves priests. For we read in Hebrews 8, 4, if Christ were on earth, he would not be a priest. And this is also why we do not have recurring days of atonement. For the work which the Lord Jesus Christ performed was done once for all and need never be repeated. Yes, it cannot be repeated. The part of the work of the Day of Atonement that is central was the special offering of the two goats, one of which had to die and the other of which was spared alive for a special ceremony. Aaron was told that he was to bring the two goats and present them before Jehovah at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And there he cast lots on the two animals, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. I shall speak more of this latter animal in a moment. The animal on which the Lord's lot fell was brought for a sin offering and was put to death. The other goat was brought and presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with the living animal, afterwards to be released in a special manner. When the first goat was killed, the blood was applied to the altar and the other utensils of worship, and then the high priest laid his hands upon the head of the live goat and confessed over him all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. When this had been done, the high priest sent the living goat into the wilderness 
by a special messenger. The Lord then made known this great fact in Leviticus 16.22, And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And after this, the messenger had to wash his clothes and bathe his flesh before returning to the camp of God's people. Could there be a more beautiful picture of the work of Christ in redeeming us? First, he bore our sins in his own body on the cross, and then he carried them far away so that they can never be brought to us again in any way. It is not strange that the devil hates this truth, which forever puts all believers beyond his reach in any way. There have been those who have attempted to interpret this as a type of Satan, the Hebrew word that is translated scapegoat, Azazel, has been interpreted by some to be a title for the devil, and under this horrible teaching, Satan becomes the sin-bearer. It is an idea that comes out of the lowest forms of religion in the world. The animists of the darkest places of savagery have ideas akin to this. This is why the witch doctors perform their horrible incantations, and why human sacrifices are offered to the vile gods of the jungle. How anyone could take such a satanic idea and seek to paste it over a form of Christianity is difficult to imagine were it not for the fact that we are told that Satan is so eager for attention from men and so desirous of credit for his beauty and power and worship for his being. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is the sin-bearer, not Satan. It is interesting to note that when Aaron performed all the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement, it was said, and there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goes in to make an atonement in the holy place until he comes out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. No other man. This was a work which the high priest did alone. It was a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross for us alone. There was no one who could have joined with him in the work of atonement, and what he was doing was rightly done, well done, and, thank God, eternally done. Our identification with the Lord Jesus Christ in his burial is a very important truth, for it shows us that our sins can never be dragged out again, never be brought against us. In the course of my ministry, I have frequently had to deal with people who have lived under a cloud of fear or remorse because they did not understand their true position in Christ Jesus. I remember dealing with a man who said that he could not forget that he had committed a certain sin some 15 years before. I asked him if he were truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that he was and gave a spiritually intelligent outline of his faith in Christ and of the meaning of Christ's death for sin and for him. I then pointed out to him that God had dealt with his sin forever and that it had been judicially removed from him and that God would never bring it up again. The reason why even God cannot bring up a man's sin against him if the man has trusted in Christ is that the sin has been removed far from the sinner as far as the east is removed from the west. In his burial, the Lord carried the sins far away and thus it is that even God can say that he remembers our sins against us no more forever. If God has forgotten our sins, should we not forget them? And when I asked the man this question, he seemed for a moment thunderstruck, 
And then the truth laid hold upon him, and he saw his true position in Christ. Why, of course, he cried, God does say that he has forgotten them. Then what a fool I have been to keep on remembering them. We must remember that fact. When a believer goes to the Lord in true confession of his sin, God looks upon him as perfect in Christ and looks upon the sin as having been placed on the Savior in his death and carried away in Christ's burial. The sin will never be brought up again by God, so it should never be brought up again by the believer. When this is understood, there will be no place whatsoever for the orgies of public confession of sin, which sometimes have passed under the name of revival. I know of an instance among a group of Christians who are noted for the solidity of their faith and the purity of their doctrine, where they allowed themselves to be carried away in a public manifestation of so-called confession of sins. Now it must be realized that sins are to be confessed, but they are not to be confessed publicly unless they have been committed publicly and publicly known. If a man has been caught in embezzlement, and if the news of it has been spread across the papers, he must undoubtedly pay the penalty of his crime to society, and if he is to be restored to a place of Christian fellowship, he must acknowledge his sin before the people. I'll tell you of two cases of embezzlement which had to be treated in quite different ways. The first was the case of a man who was caught after he had stolen a few hundred dollars from a bank in which he worked. He was arrested, the news was in the papers, and he was sent to prison for about a year. When he came back to the church in which he had been a member, he acknowledged his sin publicly and also his firm determination to live in righteousness from that time forth. He took a job at rather menial work and labored manfully at it for several years. He was obeying that line in the word of God which says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him work laboring with his hands. And then it was, after his faithfulness through these years, that a much better position opened up before him, and he's still working honorably in it. The other case differed in one important detail. The young man had taken approximately $700 from the bank in which he worked. He came and told me about it. He was desperate lest his crime be detected. I had him go directly to the president of the bank, making an appointment with the latter in order that his employee could go directly to him with the story. After the young man had left for the appointment, I called the president of the bank again, as I had agreed with the young man to do, and I told him that he was going to hear a sordid story, but that I had full confidence in the young man. As the matter turned out, we made arrangements with another bank to loan the young man sufficient money to replace what he had taken. The young man made arrangements to pay it back in installments with interest. He promised to go home and tell his wife. He did so, and the two of them came back to me. I showed the wife that she must be extremely understanding and that she must cooperate with the husband in a great effort at economy in order to remove temptation from him. The young man was transferred at his request to a place in the bank where he did not have the opportunity of touching money. In due time, the amount of his loan was paid off and the rest of the bank personnel, knowing nothing of the incident, he was promoted to a place of trust, which he still exercises well, and I have no doubt will continue so to do. Now, it would be absolutely disastrous for that man to make any public mention of his sin, no matter what the pressure by any evangelist or, quote, spiritual leader, unquote. This should be a matter between the man, his wife, 
the banker and myself. I am sure that the young man was truly repentant and that the Lord forgave him that sin as he has forgiven us of many other sins. The difference between the two incidents lies in the great fact that the Lord in his providence did not permit the crime of the latter young man to be detected while he did allow the former crime to be made public. Why God works in different ways with different people, I do not know, except that I am sure that he knows in his all wisdom exactly what is good for each one of us. The words are not in the Bible, but the old thought that the Lord tempers the wind to the shorn lamb is perfectly valid, and we can be sure our Heavenly Father is dealing with each one of us as he sees our greatest need. A few years ago, there was a wave of public confession meetings that penetrated certain strata of what is called high society. It was a work that had begun in this country and then had gone over to England, and since one or two men who were students at Oxford had joined the group, when they were in South Africa, a newspaper called it the Oxford Group, and for a time, the name stuck to them until they changed it themselves. Well, this Oxford Group movement, as it was called years ago, had its meetings in fine hotels and in great estates. Many people gathered together and at a given time in the meeting began bearing their souls to each other. There were many instances of public confessions that did great harm to other people who were involved in the incidents, for sin is not a matter that involves one person alone. Someone induced the late Haywood Brune, the newspaper man, to attend one of the confession meetings. He listened, and then he wrote in his column, with great irony, that at last he had found the type of religion that he could go for in a big way. For he continued, The next best thing to committing a sin is in telling about it afterwards. The next best thing to getting drunk, said he, is to boast about it. A pint always becomes a quart in the telling. Well, I read his column with great interest, for here a man of the world had been able to put his finger squarely on the great fault that lies in such meetings, and he had seen that there was really a tremendous exaltation of pride in the public confessions. And he concluded by pointing out that a man could sin through all the years of his manhood, and then, when he was old and worn out, could go to prayer meeting and live all of his sinful moments over again in the telling while goggle-eyed small boys looked at him in wonder and amazement as they would look at the champion in any line of sport. Psychologists know that there is a sort of mental catharsis in public confession. The Dukabors achieved the same reaction by publicly undressing. These people up in Canada that have their colony there have shown this fact. A person who has what is known as a guilt complex can perhaps get some relief by unburdening his soul and seeking to relieve the burden by sharing the knowledge of its existence. In the life of a true believer in Jesus Christ, of course, no such process is necessary. We go to the Lord and confess our sins to him, and we leave them there. To go back to them again and again is to act like a dog who digs a bone from a place where it has been buried. Remember that the next time that Satan starts nagging you about some sin. For remember that the Savior never nags any one of his children. 
It is Satan who nags the conscience, not God. God is a God of all grace and brings his child to the fountain where he may know full cleansing. Then he delights to lead the child into the higher ways of living, teaching him day by day to walk worthily of the calling wherewith he has been called. Oh, do not then play dog and go off to the grave of Christ to attempt to dig up that which has been buried by our Lord in his burial. You do not achieve your purpose so far as he is concerned, for when you have confessed a sin to him once, any attempt to confess it again can do no more than bring sorrow to his heart that you have not understood that his compassion surrounds you and that his whole plan has made provision for your sin. We read in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, that is any believing man, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propition for our sins, the sins of Christians, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Some time ago, I preached a sermon on what God had done with our sins. I used the whole string of verses that are to be found scattered throughout the Bible and pointed out that God said that our sins are forgiven, and this we read in John 2.12, that they are forgotten, that they are cleansed, Jeremiah tells us, that they are gone, atoned for, that they are covered, that they are cast into the depths of the sea, Micah tells us that they are removed as far as the east is from the west, we read in the Psalms, that they are blotted out as a thick cloud, Isaiah tells us, that they are cast behind God's back, again we read in Isaiah, while Jeremiah says that they are remembered against us no more forever. Oh, when once we have seen the work of the Lord on behalf of our sins, it is a vision which satisfies us forever. The penalty of sin will be seen as removed at the cross and the sin itself as being carried away by the Savior where it can never be brought up against us or have any further effect upon us. It is then that we begin to enter into the joy of knowing that its present power has also been dealt with and that it is possible for us to live in triumph even though we still possess the nature of Adam. God has dealt with our sin judicially and the power is canceled and the dominion ended and thus we can live day by day looking forward to that time when even the presence of sin shall be removed from our being and from all the earth and there shall be no more sin in all of God's redeemed universe. And thus we see the true meaning of our identification by the Holy Spirit in the work of Christ. There is far more involved here than a sacrament or an ordinance. There is the symbol of our total oneness with the Savior in his death and in his triumph. And therein lies our present position in relation to all of our sin or our sins. In teaching that we are not to make this verse a picture of water baptism, we have not in the slightest changed the literal meaning of the word or taken from any partisan the arguments for his position but we have opened up the vista of a vast scene of victory and glory which can take us on step by step in the midst of the pilgrim way in which we must walk. And now, our God, we pray thee that we shall see these wonderful truths in this hour 
and that every man and woman who listens, those who know the weight of sin may have that weight removed and know that the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin and that thy children shall have the joy of knowing that we have been jointly buried with Christ, that our sins are in his tomb, and that he has carried them far away and that never again in time nor in eternity shall they ever be brought to face us who have put our trust in the Savior, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We pray thee to give unrest to those who have not believed in thee, restlessness until they come to believe in the Savior. But upon all thy redeeming own, may thy grace, thy mercy, thy peace, and a new joy in complete forgiveness. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now till the Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. We sing, Living He Loved Me, Dying He Saved Me, Buried He Carried My Sins Far Away. When you are identified with Jesus Christ in His burial, your sins are buried in the bottom of the sea. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, In His Burial. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, In His Burial, or simply request message number R6-12. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled God's Mercy, Our Salvation. The Bible declares that we are saved by grace through faith. And yet deep down, many believers still feel that somehow our works, self-effort, or good moral character must contribute something to our salvation. This free booklet sets forth the glorious biblical truth that our salvation is completely rooted in God and based on His boundless mercy and free grace. Don't exchange the liberating power of the gospel for a cheap imitation. Ask for your free copy of God's Mercy, Our Salvation, when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is the radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from this broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888, or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.